being a reporter in an era where the media is increasingly under attack. This week, a reporter's roundtable and their thoughts about the upcoming legislative session. A lively experiment is generously underwritten by. For 30 years, a lively experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. Joining us this week on the panel, Providence Journal reporter Patrick Anderson, Michelle Smith, Associated Press correspondent, and WPRI political reporter Dan McGowan. Hello and welcome. I'm Jim Hummel. Last week we spoke with legislative leaders who will have a hand in shaping this year's General Assembly session. This week, reporters who will have a front row seat for much of the action, from Smith Hill to Providence City Hall and points in between. What is it like being a reporter in 2019? We will get to that momentarily, but the big news up at the General Assembly this week was the House rules, something you don't hear a lot about, but the so-called Reform Caucus has been pushing for rules changes. So we sat down with uh, Executive Director of Common Cause, John Marion. Here's some of my interview with him on what to look for. One of the, the primary problems in Rhode Island is that power is centralized in the hands of a single person, the Speaker of the House, in the House, and the Senate President in the Senate. Rather than having committee chairs with some autonomy, committee chairs are, are um, largely uh, left to take orders from the Speaker of the House about what bills will pass out of committee, instead of making independent judgment about what um, bills would come out out of committee and get to the floor. And that really um, takes away from what should be sort of a deliberative process in committees. Political scientists often say the work of legislatures happens in committees. It's not happening right now in Rhode Island in committees because too much power comes from the third floor. When you put the power in the hands of one person, there are all these voices trying to get in there uh, and, and make their voice be heard, including some on the leadership team. And they can't be heard because everything's happening at the end of the session and everybody's trying to get their stuff through. So they need to spread things out over the course of the session. Uh, and they need to allow, you know, give mechanisms for, for rank and file legislators to bring good ideas forward. At this point, it looks like we're going to see uh, probably one significant change, which is uh, amendments are going to be made public uh, in advance uh, of uh, their being voted on, 24 or 48 hours, we don't, we don't know exactly what that is. That's really significant because sometimes these amendments change the entire substance of the bill. And that's exactly what happened on Thursday night. They, uh, they passed this through the House Rules Committee. Patrick, why don't you set the table? You were there and you've been following this all along. This is a pretty, the Reform Caucus didn't get everything it wanted, but this is a significant development. Yeah, it's not going to change in a really big way what happens uh, in the House, but it's a, a step in a better direction. I think it'll make our job easier to tell the public what's happening, uh, to have uh, 24 hours, have a day to actually read a bill before it's passed. It's also a sign that uh, the Speaker is listening to some of the pressure that's on him to change a few things. Uh, that he is not uh, keeping everything locked down and business as usual. Um, And maybe that's a sign that on some of the other issues, maybe the issues that people, um, 
care about more directly for how they would affect their lives, um, there also might, might be a little movement this year. We've all been up there when, the, when it comes off the ditto machine, right, so to speak. Yeah, and one of the things I thought was interesting this week is, you know, there's this group of dissident Democrats um, who got shut out uh, when Mattiello regained his position as speaker, but they were able to bring in a lot of members of the public um, this week, to, and those members of the public really express strong opinions and feelings that there needs to be changes in the rules. You don't usually see that. Um, it's kind of this arcane uh, area of state government with rules in the House. I mean, it's hard to translate that for, for just regular people, like why this would matter to them. So that that is interesting that they were able to pull together that kind of pressure campaign. And it seems like these are some of the things they're they're really putting a lot of energy into getting people, even though they're kind of locked out of the levers of power right now, they're they're pulling people in um, to come and have their backs up at the state house. The big question is, does that message get through to Speaker Mattiello, right? So certainly you get the 24-hour rule, so that that speaks to a little bit of it. But, uh, you know, he's still kind of writing this off as this doesn't matter to real people. It doesn't matter to the, the you know, regular people of our constituents. And um, I think he's wrong about that. I think it, it does matter to people. I think we saw that by the by the numbers of people who turned out. But if the, if the attitude up there, uh, whether it's in the House or the Senate, um, is that this is just about fighting in, you know, within the Democratic Party, nothing's going to change um, for the long term. And you'll still see at the end of the session, the rules get suspended and, uh, you know, bills get passed uh, with, with huge amendments uh, very quickly uh, with very little uh, public notice. Yeah. I was going to say the one other really interesting thing watching it was how the uh, progressive Democrats, the Reform Caucus Democrats interacted or didn't with the Republicans who have fought for these rules changes for many years. And even though they agreed substantially on a lot of the things they were pushing for, there was still this reluctance that you could feel to really... To forge work, a, uh, yeah, a relationship to forge or a bond. A, a forge an alliance. Right, yeah, sort of oil and water. They, they, they're, they're still reluctant to do that because ideologically on so many of the other big issues that the rules could play a part in deciding down the line... They don't agree. So that's that's something that we're watching. We're going to be you know, watching all year and is really fascinating. Even with the Republicans, they don't have enough votes to pass anything, but still just fascinating to watch. Well, and, and if they joined forces, couldn't they stop things from happening? That I They mean, can make it difficult for the speaker to pass the budget. That's the that's mm-hmm. the big leverage that they have. And that that will play out for a while. But that's how they could really work together. What about the budget this year? You know, we've talked about the looming hole. This seems to be an annual thing, but they're they're really up against it this year. So I wonder from your perspective, I know that will come later in the session. But is that what really dominates? They kind of do their work and then it, or is the, is the budget kind of always in the background up there? The budget is the thing that the speaker really needs to pass, and th- that's the thing in the forefront of, of his mind, and, and what a lot of the negotiating is happening, negotiating that happens throughout the year is happening over the budget, and that's part of the reason why everything does get backloaded into this crazy frenzy of uh, late-season uh, legislating, because it's all 
tied up around the budget. We uh, were talking, Michelle, before the show about uh, some uh, legislation that the new attorney general is going to put forward. Why don't you talk um, about that? Yeah, it's part of there's been this focus around the country on um, sexual abuse, um, sexual abuse uh, in the Catholic Church. It's kind of resurfaced uh, this issue last year when the Pennsylvania attorney general had a grand jury look into the, the abuse problem in Pennsylvania, and they found 300 priests um, over a period of decades who had uh, abused kids. And so there has been a push by, um, by abuse survivors at, in the church to have similar reports done in other states. There are other states where they're looking into the, where, where they're already starting investigations. They have been pushing for that in Rhode Island, but um, Attorney General Nerona has said it's not possible to do that um, because grand jury matters are secret unless they come up with an indictment. So if they, if a grand jury met, looked into it and couldn't find a crime that they could prosecute, um, they wouldn't issue anything. So he has said he would propose legislation that would allow that to happen in, in uh, you know, they, to, to allow the publication of a report into uh, if, if they did something like this. Another thing that's very, probably more significant for accountability on the sexual abuse um, in the church, but also elsewhere, like, at St. George's School, um, some of the survivors of the abuse there have pushed for this and lobbied for this at the State House. is extending the statute of limitations on civil lawsuits. Right now, it's um, seven years. and A lot the, of this happened decades ago. Yes, yeah. And there are uh, a lot of uh, people who were abused, you know, 20, 30 years ago who have not been able to seek justice or compensation because of that statute of limitations. So there is an effort to extend that to 35 years. That's what Massachusetts has. And um, there has been, again, a push around the country to extend the statute of limitations. It sounds like there is support for this um, this year. And uh, I know a lot of uh, survivors of abuse are hopeful it will move forward. All right. Legalization of marijuana, we've seen... uh you know, Massachusetts is knocking on the doorstep. I wonder, though, whether when the rubber hits the road, whether that's something that's actually going to make it through or whether we may be need another year. Yeah, I mean, it seems it's one of those bills that always comes up. And the more, you know, if Massachusetts and Connecticut seem to get on board, I think Governor Raimondo has expressed more support recently um, in that way. I mean, look, we've done gambling now. Uh, the, it seems like people are pretty comfortable with that. Um, it, it would seem like this will end up being uh, uh, legalized at some point. Is it going to be this year? I mean, I think it, they're going to have to look at that budget and figure out if it, that's what helps to close holes. Well, well, we'll, we'll know something uh, next week when the governor releases her budget. Um, she usually has something related to medical marijuana, at least, uh, in her budget. And that got scaled back. Remember, she was trying to increase the number of dispensaries last year, right? Yeah. So there will likely be something that will at least signal where we're going and, and what kind of pace we're on towards legalization. Just uh, quickly, the dynamic between the governor and the spe- uh, speaker has been a little chilly. Senator Ruggiero is in there. 
how do you, do you see things changing at all going into this session, or how do you gauge those relationships? Well, it's it's really been uh, more uh, friendly over the last. Uh, I don't know, eight, nine months. Since since the campaign really ramped up last year, they came to a kind of meeting of the minds, the speaker and the and the governor. You know, it can it has in the past and probably will again go off the rails on some topic. Uh, you never really know what it is. Uh, the Paw Sox have done, done it in the past. They're off the table. Um, but right now they seem to be getting along OK. Um, but who knows? Uh, let's shift gears. We have Mr. Providence here with us. We got a lot on the uh, the table. New female, first female uh, council president. Although Sabina Matos had done a little interim, the mayor wants us to be kinder and gentler in a more compassionate city. Give me your snapshot going into this session of the city council. Yeah, they're staring at um, a little bit of a different problem than the state is, which is they feel pretty good in the short term about their finances. They they ran a surplus again last year. Um, they're going to get they're going to benefit from a re uh, revalue of properties, which will likely hike taxes, but without, you know, increasing the rates. So they feel pretty good about where they are. But, you know, everything that everybody looks at in the city is about what they do with their pension problem. And they've got a billion dollar unfunded liability. And the mayor, uh, Mayor Lors has basically said the only way to do this is to uh, monetize the Providence water supply. There doesn't seem to be any appetite for that at the state house. And then even Council President Matos says that uh, she she is opposed to it. And I think the majority of the council is opposed to it. It's a new day, though, for Providence, having an all-female majority, not that they're all going to vote together, but that's, that's pretty significant. Are, have coalitions already begun, or, or is everybody trying to feel their way as to where they are? I think people are still kind of feeling their way. There's no, to be very clear, while, the, while it is an 8-7 majority female council, this is not a 8 They're not women, voting in yeah, a block, right? This is not right? 8 women supporting one another. Um, but it is a little bit of a new day. I think Council President Matos um, is a new face for the city, though she's been around now for, this is her third term. Um, you know, she She's not one of the, the council president typically comes from, you know, an insider's background. You think about a guy like Michael Solomon, people over the years. Um, council President Matos isn't from here. She's from the Dominican Republic. You know, she's got a good story. Um, certainly she's going to try to turn this and, and potentially look at running for mayor in four years. But, uh, yeah, I think there is a little bit of a, a fresh face now in, in uh, leading city government. You wrote about how Alerza said in his address that, he wants a kinder, gentler providence. Has he said, what does that mean? Yeah, it's a good question. That was the exact question that we asked him right afterwards. What, uh-huh. what does this look Can like? Can we not honk our horns at interceptions anymore? <laughs> yeah, is that, uh... The joke that I was making was, are you just going to start hugging everybody uh-huh. or something like that? No, you know, I think what he what he's trying to do is he got a real burst and boost out of uh, after President Trump got he's elected. He's playing off the federal the whole immigration, right? I, very much so. And, he, and he's a guy who um, he stumbles around through his first two years in office, then President Trump gets elected, and he's the most vocal politician in the state, really, uh, kind of leading that resistance movement. And nationally, he's made inroads, a- right? Absolutely. And I think he I think he sees this as a way to potentially do it. But what does it mean? I think it's going to generally mean things like art installations at PVD Fest and, you know, talking about being kinder. But you're not going to see any sort of real spending or initiatives that, that, that you're going to notice in everyday life. One one question I have is is does Alorza have any kind of pull or is he is he able to forge alliances on the state level that allow him to do some of the things like around the water system or any of the big things that he needs state permission to do and he never seems like he's been able to 
get that juice uh, up the hill. Yeah, I mean, historically, uh, the mayor of Providence has a ton of juice because you just have that many reps or senators at the state house. Um, it doesn't feel like that. Uh, that is the case. Um, I will say that I think uh, it's becoming uh, before and after this runs. Uh, Aaron Regenberg, the former state rep, is going to be uh, joining the mayor's staff. Does that actually help him, though, in the eyes of the speaker? I'm not sure. What uh, is his relationship with the Providence delegation? So crucial up at the state house. What, what are, does it just depend on the person? Or are they together? Very much depends on the person. Uh, it, you know, it, it is not like the old days where you could call somebody in and say, "Look, you're not getting a job, or you're going to get fired." Um, the mayor doesn't do that. It's just not his style, and uh, he's really struggled when he when he brings them in to kind of give his legislative agenda. Usually, beginning of February, um, he, you know, he doesn't get full attendance at these meetings, things like that. So he doesn't have a ton of juice up there, um, something that he acknowledges and needs to work on, but uh, hasn't really figured out how to do it yet. All right. The uh, federal government shutdown is beginning to trickle down uh, to the state level and, you know, in a variety of ways. Michelle, you've been taking a look at this because it just you realize how uh, embedded the federal government is everywhere. And Friday today, it's the first paycheck that federal workers will miss. So people are going to start feeling it right now. Um, As of this weekend, if it continues, uh, it will be the longest. It will. The record is on Saturday for the longest federal shutdown. So I've talked to some federal workers who said, you know, they're they're okay for now. But if it if it lasts a couple more weeks, they're going to start being in trouble. I mean, people have mortgages to pay, things like that. You're seeing like. People are driving Uber to carry them through, um, trying to figure out uh, jobs they can do. I I just uh, read there's like a a military assistance organization that's helping Coast Guard uh, employees in Providence and in Massachusetts to feed them meals. And they've seen like a doubling in the need uh, due to the shutdown during the shutdown. So. It's a very, um, it's a really tough situation for the workers. Um, we're also seeing, like, you know, at, at airports, it sounds like TF Green is doing okay for now, but um, TSA workers are coming to work and they're not getting paid. And those are, you know, they're making 30 grand a year. How long are they going to be coming to work without a paycheck? And the ultimate irony is the people who guard the president, right? The Secret Service, they're, they're not uh, getting paid. I don't know. What do you see for the long run? Well, I think I think the air, when people cannot get a flight out of TF Green and and, and all the airports across the country, that's really going to um, that's really going to change the calculus and other things like that. It hasn't. I don't think it's really hit home to to the, to most uh, Americans yet. Uh, the impacts of it, but in in those coming weeks, it it mm-hmm. probably it probably will. Uh, and that's what's that's what's going to ramp up the pressure for them to do something. Yeah, and we're ta- I mean we're taping on a Friday. If today's the first paycheck day, that could really move things very quickly because it's all fun and games and it's all silly Washington politics until people aren't getting paid, and then then you've got right. a real problem. Right, and then there's also I mean just the everyday things that you need. Like I know someone who had an appointment with TSA to get global entry. Um, it's like the fast track through the TSA line. You have to go in and get your fingerprints and stuff. That got canceled, of course, and who knows when that's going to happen. Then last night, the news broke that um, 
there's a settlement between the SEC and Wells Fargo in the 38 Studios case. It's Not officially last, entered, right? It's the last legal uh, issue surrounding 38 Studios. And as it turns out, they can't finish it because the SEC workers are furloughed. So they've got to get a delay until after the furlough happens. They've asked the judge for a delay. And, you know, I don't see why the judge wouldn't grant it. But but we can't have finality on that until the furlough is over. All right. I want to talk about being a reporter in this state, something we all know about. But let's uh, let's do outrageous first. Dan, what do you have this week? Yeah. So uh, Tim White and I did a story uh, this week on the mayor um, raising a lot of money for his inauguration. I know the journal did this for uh, this story on the governor. Uh, one of the interesting kind of quirks about what the mayor gets to do is he raises money into a nonprofit that he then uh, uses most of it or much of it for his inauguration but then is allowed to use the rest of the money for um, for his personal travel. Uh, Does he travel a lot? Job. I've heard that. He travels <laughs> a little bit. Yeah, he likes to travel. Um, and uh, what the thing is, I'm fine with him traveling. He wants to say that it, it makes the city a better place. I, I can hear that argument. I think what's uh, very questionable is the ability to get on the phone with donors, with people with businesses with city contracts, um, you know, real large companies, and and have them write that a have check. spending limits on a personal campaign. That's right. You can't. I mean, you right? certain you certainly couldn't even get a business contribution from uh, you know to, to your political campaign. And in this case, it's unchecked. There's no one that can. Uh, there's no way to stop him. Uh, but it's something worth looking at because I think it's it's somewhat questionable. All right, Patrick, what do you have? Well, I'm going to borrow uh, an outrage from one of my my colleagues um, who's been tracking uh, public relations spending in the governor's uh, office. Uh, It was an issue in the campaign that we just went through for governor. And once the campaign ended, uh, postings have begun for new uh, PR positions and and raises in state government. Um, And this is I have no problem with with the, the folks who do these jobs. They're amazing in many cases. Uh, and great. But there is a question of, is there a point where the state has enough uh, public relations uh, people and uh, and we're not getting much uh, return on, on that spending? All right. Michelle, what do you have? Well, I have a kudos. Um, also air travel related that there's, uh, you know, there's a few more flights coming to TF Green domestically, one to Minneapolis. I go to Minneapolis a lot. And we lost... All about you, Michelle. I know. We lost, a, we lost a Minneapolis <laughs> flight a few years ago, and we've got one back. It's only seasonal. But, you know, there's... Not I've in seen, the winter? It's not <laughs> in the winter. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. But, you know, I've seen... There's been a drop-off in some of those direct flights domestically. Um, and I, I have heard the business community has noticed that and felt that. Um, but just me as a, as a person, I've noticed it too. And I don't like going to Logan. I love staying at TF Green. It's a great airport. And any, any way we can bring more flights there, I am for that. Well, I'm glad they're personally taking yes. care of you. And you probably wouldn't want to be in Minneapolis this time of year anyway. Uh, I did want to, in the five minutes we have left, talk about being a reporter. I hate the term fake news because it, it feeds into everybody's kind of worst thoughts about, look, reporters, we all make errors uh, at times. Nobody's perfect, but this whole thought about intentional. So I wonder about the disconnect between what's going 
on nationally and here. And Dan, we'll, we'll start with you because you've been here not as long, but I find that most people, if you establish a relationship, then they know who you are and you have equity. Do you seem a little disconnected or is it tough being a reporter these days? No, I, I think what you hear about from the on the national stage, um, I think it's quite different from what we really see day to day in Rhode Island. It's, it's sort of, you know, the saying about members of Congress, you hate Congress as a body, but you like your local congressman. I think people like their local reporters. I think we, we are fortunate in Rhode Island, I think, to have a really uh, talented crop of reporters. Um, and, and so I think uh, people generally trust us. And the ability, because it's so small, the ability to see folks at the supermarket and to be able to, you know, really explain your, yourself and, and what you're reporting. Um, I, I, I hear nothing but generally positive things about what we're doing. I think people wish we had more, there were more of us. Yes, there should be more of us. <laughs> if anyone has a way of paying for that, I'd, do it. <laughs> yeah, but um, I I agree with what Dan says. But I will also say I have seen some of the attitude of some of what's going on nationally trickle down. Um, we had a gubernatorial candidate, um, the Republican gubernatorial candidate Alan Fung, who refused to really take any questions, to answer questions at press conferences um, during the primary, really at all. He did a, a couple interviews here and there, um, but but I have never seen that. Never. And that came back to bite him, don't you think? Well, um, I'll let other people judge that, but uh, but I, I can say from experience of covering many gubernatorial campaigns, U.S. Senate campaigns, I've never seen a candidate for a major office in Rhode Island who would really just kind of run away on just a regular news day. There was no scandal or anything like that happening. Um, it, it, it was very, it was disappointing because we as reporters, we, we are here to inform the public. I think of us as representatives of the public and we're explaining the events of the day. We're trying to help People sort out who they're going to vote for, what different candidates stand for, what the policy positions are. And we can't do that when um, public officials don't talk to us. Yeah, hopefully the early fun campaign is a cautionary tale that prevents this from repeating in other campaigns. Because I think it really did uh, hurt him, his ability to get uh, name recognition and get and sort of set the agenda early in the campaign when he had a chance to. But, yeah, I think it's more when when things become hyper partisan uh, in an, in an, and connected to the national issues, then you feel a little bit. But um, mostly this this still Rhode Island still feels like a small town and the politics feels very local. And, and you typically don't get much of that Washington style um, attacks on the media and and fake news uh, generally. You know, I had a friend who uh, is a national correspondent for the New York Times, used to work here for the Providence Journal, and I always kind of looked at her as, wow, she's doing this national thing. And she told me once, she said, Hummel, you guys have the harder job because you're in the community, and as you said, sometimes you have to face somebody you wrote about at the grocery store or whatever. But I also think, don't you think, because you build up equity every day with your stories, and that can go very quickly with an error or whatever, but especially at the State House, Patrick, with the relationships, people know who you are, right? Yeah, um, and that's that's both the fun and the difficult uh, part. Is yeah, you're you're writing about people that you're seeing <laughs> you see it every, every day, right? Seeing every day, uh, and um, and and personality becomes 
part of it when you're uh, when you're stuck together for six months. Um, but it's also it's it's still an incredibly fun job, despite all of the issues surrounding the news business financially and and all this stuff happening in Washington. It's still a blast and it, there, there's no job like it. How, just 30 seconds, how have things changed at all since when you arrived in the market to now? You know, I've been fortunate just by being young enough to have kind of, I know nothing other than being sort of on all the time, digitally, you know, focused and things like that. And so it hasn't changed all that much. But what we have seen is certainly, um, I think the people we cover become more, sort of pay more uh, closer attention to social media, things like that. Okay. Folks, that is all the time we have. We appreciate you joining us, Patrick and Michelle and Dan. Nice to see you. They'll be following the session. I hope you'll be following us throughout the course of the session as we have all the major players here on Lively Experiment. We hope you join us back here next week as Lively continues. Have a great weekend, everybody. A Lively Experiment is generously underwritten by. For 30 years, A Lively Experiment has been helping us understand the most important issues facing Rhode Islanders. Hi, I'm John Hazen White, Jr., and I'm proud to be a sponsor of this great program. 